Welcome back to Blamo, a podcast with an exclamation point. My guest this week is Nick Sullivan. Nick Sullivan is the fashion director of Esquire magazine and the editor of their acclaimed style guide, Big Black Book. Nick and I spoke about his life growing up in the UK and how he stumbled into the world of fashion. We also talk about how trends come and go and the importance of authenticity above all. Let's do it. time someone had said i sound like alan rickman i had i'd have precisely 13 dollars right now wow there's quite a few actually twice <laughs> last week uh, really <laughs> I twice last week? i don't really know what to do with that information <laughs> first off thank you very very much for coming on my pleasure this was a long time coming it was that's because i was so evasive or elusive shall we say no but well, meanwhile i've been listening to blamo oh you have i've enjoyed it very much oh okay good yeah it's yeah. a great idea it's it's fun i think it's been interesting to hear people's stories in terms of menswear and how they got to where they got. And uh, the response has been really good. So it's been, it's, it's very, uh, it's very fun. Now, having you on, I just pause because most people, I can do a lot of Googling and a lot of searching and get a ton of backstory on. But uh, other than that, you worked at GQ in the UK, like... I've had the rest erased. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Not a lot of people. Yeah. I don't know why that is. I think it's because I come from a time before the internet. That's probably what it is. I don't I don't know, but I was like Is that true? You've tried to Google me and not come up with much? I mean, I found, you know, other people interviewing you that was you know, for in their case it was more of like what you were doing at the magazine and like what you're responsible yeah. for. And that, you know, is pretty clear uh That's from the get go. Maybe it's a good thing though. Yeah, I mean, but I was like, well, how did this guy grow up? And I was like, well, there's more photos of him, you know, as a younger guy, like on your Instagram, but there's... We can't find them on no. the internet. And no. I was like, well, maybe I should find out the school. And I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to talk to the guy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, so I start with A and get to Z? Well, Z, I, it's, say. I mean, it's kind of whatever you want, but I think the biggest thing I want to do is is... Like, I kind of want to talk about how you got into fashion and then what you've been doing over at Esquire and then kind of how you've seen menswear evolve. I mean, one of the things we walked in here and before we started recording, you were telling me how excited you were and how much stuff has been changing and, and how things have been great. And, you know, uh, people have been yeah, really receptive. A, you know, in a time that's really kind of tricky for for the for the industry, the fashion industry, the retail industry, manufacturers. Everybody in the entire chain is difficult at the moment <clears throat> because people aren't buying as much. Yeah, it's uncertainty. <coughs> Excuse me, and it has, you know, it has an immediate knock-on effect, or a, in some cases, a gradual knock-on effect. But the end result is that things are a bit shaky, um, which is why it's actually it's fine for us in a way because all those things are shaky. Uh, Esquire's in a, in probably the most exciting phase of its development that I've seen for 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 a long time. Um and I mean, how long since have you been we, I've been here for um since the 14th century. Um <laughs> no, I've been here for 13 years last week. Oh, but congratulations. 10 years, thank you. 10 years ago we launched Big Black Book and that was a big deal. Yeah. Um it's now 10 and a half years ago but <clears throat> that was the last time I think really there was something in the this end of the magazine, the end that I'm sort of inhabiting the fashion, the fashion and lifestyle in right was probably the most exciting thing and that was exciting for a long time yeah um but this jab in the arm which is what it is for for for, for esquire is, is is very exciting because as you know you know esquire is a very it's a venerated 
brand, not just a magazine, but a brand. It's an identity. It's, an, it's a For state sure. of mind, and it's been around since 1933. And it's been many different things in those times. It's sort of a little bit like a kind of a slalom skier that goes around the same path, but no one goes around it quite the same way every time. The way that we're all sort of aiming at that guy, a certain guy, and some... But that guy's changing all the time. What he wants, what he's thinking, how he's reacting to the world is changing all the time. And for a man, it's, it's really is. I mean, there are so many analogies. It's it's plates on sticks. It's <laughs> crossing a river full of crocodiles. Right. It's all sorts of things. But it's 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 something that is changing. If you if you try to establish, if there was ever a set formula, it never probably was appropriate for longer than a few years. Right. And the problem with magazines, and I th- or, or maybe the strength with magazines, is if. If you don't get stuck in a in a formula, if you're constantly looking out for how things are changing around you, you know what to do with the magazine. And, and right now, we feel like we're we have a great team. We mm-hmm. have we have actually <clears throat> this kind of idea of everyone's. There's a consensus going for. We don't always agree with each other all the time, but that's just good. But in fact, that's the most important thing that yeah. we shouldn't, because the moment everybody agrees with everyone, you all pat yourselves on the back, go and have a whiskey, and you know, and then Rest the magazine disappears. Yeah. You know, and the magazine veers off. Right. You know, um, but it, to me, it's the, the most exciting thing about publishing is having the sense, the gut sense, that you're doing something that people want to see, right. people want to read, and they're going to come back to it because they liked it last time. So, um, what made you get into this industry in general? Because you're um, originally from the UK. Yeah, originally from the UK, it was poverty mainly was got, what got me into the industry. Um, but it could have been, frankly, any other industry at the time. I I studied languages. I studied French at university in uh, Warwick in the Midlands, uh, just purely because I grew up going on holiday. My mum was a French teacher. Our family was kind of, we were all into languages. Right, um, were you from f- Warwick? No, I was from Dorset in the south coast of England, a town gotcha. called Bournemouth. Which was also filled in the summer with European kids kind of came over to learn English as a foreign language, and you know, so there was a sort of a culture of this. In in the winter, it was people who were slowly dying, and in the summer, it was late teen kids from Italy, France, Spain, Germany, Sweden, Denmark, all on their first holidays away from their parents. Right. So you can imagine what that did to the mind. Um, yeah. But it was very inspirational. So, so basically, the short-term thing for me was to study language. I studied French, only French. Um, and when I graduated, I was sort of kind of hoping I might get to use it. I wrote off lots of hopeful letters to French advertising agencies and Air France and, gosh, who else? Aerospatiale and all these industries for which I had absolutely no qualifications. The fact that they were French and I could speak some French. <laughs> uh, and not surprisingly, they sent back... Very polite. I've still got them. I, I actually found them recently um, at my mum's. They're, they're, they're very polite, sort of formulaic. Don't uh, call us ever. Je suis très désolé. Je suis <laughs> I'm very des- desolated. Um, and, and after a while, I ran out. Of, I got all the replies back from all the letters that I sent out and sort of gave it up. So um, at that point, I'd moved to London um, and worked in the foreign languages department of a, a big university bookshop called Dylan's which has since, I think, become part of Waterstones. It's the, it was the 100-year-old University of London bookshop, basically. It's right. a huge, great place. Uh, and I'd worked in bookshops before, so it kind of... It was a, it literally the 
minimum wage you could possibly get in those days. I can't even remember what it was. And at a certain point, I had to, I realized I had to try and do something that would just get something more. Sure. And I was willing to work in a pizza restaurant if I thought that that would make more money. But then I, at, the, at one and the same time, I ended up with interviews to work as an ad sales representative on a, you'll, you'll laugh when I tell you, it's called Electronics Express. It was a trade newspaper for the microtransistors industry. Oh. <laughs> I, I don't know, I couldn't even tell you what it is now. <laughs> and then the other one was to, to, for a magazine, a trade magazine called International Textiles, which used to be quite quite revered. I don't even, I'm, I'm sure it's still going, but it used to be a business-to-business magazine at the time before there was any internet service, any sort of direct consultancy. Right. And it was a, a very expensive subscription. It was what now would be thought of as not very much. It was 150 quid a, a year. Right. But back then, that was probably, in terms of what else there was out there, it was probably like, you know, 1,000 or 2,000. Right. Which for a small company to subscribe to was quite a lot. And it was published in three languages, so I kind of managed to blag my way in. Ah, there you go. The French. Um, well, I was also learning <laughs> Italian by that point. Oh, okay. <laughs> so I, I, I slightly exaggerated the level of Italian that I could speak. Hey, it's all right. Um, and, um, and got a job as an editorial assistant, and, and that was it. Electronics Express called me back and said no, and on the principle I'd been told that you have to demand in a a second interview if you didn't get one. So I did, oh. and then I realized I didn't want to go there at all, but I had to go through the motions. <laughs> I just thought, well, I pushed it, so I went anyway. But by that point, I accepted the job at International Textiles. So I started in the trade, and I'm properly in the trade, going to textile fairs, <clears throat> which were not the exciting audiovisual experiences they are today. There were squares of cloth on hangers, right. um, on bleak stands, no matter how good the fa- fabrics were. So it wasn't like Premier Vision or whatever. Well, actually, Premier Vision then was a little bit more was a was a bit more glamorous than the others. But for the most part, it was uh, to someone who hadn't studied anything to do with textiles, it was baffling. Right. Um, and it was a a real fake it till you make it kind of situation. <laughs> um, but that's nothing like the, 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 the that's the best. I would say that's the best way to learn a business is to get thrown into it. Right. Even if this was a slightly odd sort of offlet, offset, off, what's the word, um, side show to the main event. Mm-hmm. I felt like I was sort of not really in fashion industry in that way, in media, in that way at that point. But then gradually I started go, under, beginning to understand a little bit. And because we were so short, so short of staff, I was sent off to go and do trips to Italy within a few months, which was useful because I was trying to learn Italian and I thought, well, that was exciting and everything. So I'd go to Florence and then I started going to uh, the trade show called Idia Biella, which now I think has been subsumed into this monster kind of tra- textile show in Milan. This then was... Unica? Show, yeah, Milan Unica is, is not what it is now, but right. back then it was called Idia Biella and it was all the Biella, Biella woolen mills who supply all the all the big... Sure, designers and all the and posh stuff, and, mainly yeah. mainly walls and 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 so there was Chiruti and there was Zenia and there was all these uh, uh, Vitale Barberis. This the people you see the little labels of inside nice suits sometimes. Um, yeah. <laughs> and they showed in the in the in the Villa d'Este, which is one of the poshest hotels in Europe. They took what the top floor, and the journalists were invited and stayed on one of the sort of middle floors. Okay. And so I got to stay for two, three nights, and I'd go in the most amazing room with the most amazing view, 
totally wasted on me, really, I suppose. Um, and then we'd go upstairs and go and see the cloth. But that was actually a really good experience because you had a little bit more time with these brands. Right. And I learnt a lot of the sort of initial nuts and bolts of how menswear works. And and to a lot of people, I think a lot of people still think, well, there's you can decide about a, a jacket, what color it's going to be, what cloth it's going to be, what the weave is like, what shape it's going to be, what the details are. And I used to think, oh, yeah, all right, snore. When people used to say, oh, it starts with, it has to start with the cloth. And, and it does because the cloth will define what you want a jacket to do will define what cloth you need. Right. You can't just make any old cloth do any old thing. If you want a travel jacket, you've got to choose a certain type of wool that has a certain twist, that has a certain weave. If you... you this is like true to, menswear time. Just it, not, it's literally yeah. the DNA of... of and, but this is for fashion designers too. I mean, yeah. a lot of the, the customers were Armani and Gucci and Prada and people like that. Oh, actually, it was before Prada even existed as a menswear label. But... Um, but it, it made me realize very early on that you'd like to learn menswear. You don't do it from the top down. You, don't, you have to do it from the ground up. So if you just ended up, started off going to runway shows, you only get a very superficial idea of, what, of why those designers, right? even kind of revolutionary designers, why does Raph Simon do a coat like that? There are sort of reasons that you, you don't get unless you know what the cloth is. Right. And, you know, and, I, and I used to go... and. It's it's funny. I used to sit next to people who were, you know, prominent stylists, prominent sort of uh, fashion writers, and some some of them would say, "Is that is that suede or is it nylon?" I can't really tell. Hmm. And sometimes you can't if it's a long way away on a runway. But if you're actually touching it, you should really be able to tell the difference. Yes. Um, one is leather. <laughs> one is leather. One comes from cows. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, it used to. I've realised the more I've learned the more inevitable it is that I'm going to sound like an old fart if I don't already. No. Because some of those things about clothes that are fundamental to men's, probably more than women's, are are really down to uh, the weave and the cloth and the color and and some old geezer in a a shed weaving bits of yellow into a tweed because it's the color of the flowers on one hill where that tweed is supposed to be, was made for. You know that that Scottish estate, right? I tell people that, and I half expect them to be snoring before I get the get the sentence out. But to <laughs> me, it's actually I like it still. Well, I think that it speaks to something that, at least now, I think more and more people are really trying to care about and get to the core of, and that's like the authenticity and integrity behind garments, mm. um, especially even like the biggest and best designers that everyone's so obsessed with, from like Rick Owens to, you know. Uh, I know the J.W. Anderson, all those guys that are really into them. A lot of those guys are still, they start with the core of what, they're not just like, oh, wouldn't it be cool if dot, 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 dot. Mm. You know, and I think the stuff that you're speaking about um, is more of what people need to know and more of what people want to understand. And I think, you know, a lot of times people think so much of the business is, you know, just sexiness and looking cool. And it's like a perfect example is sitting in your office right now. We're in Nick Sullivan's office at the Hearst uh, building. And I'm surrounded by tons and tons of books, tons of photos, reference points. There's Prince Charles, there's 
you know, there's... Well, well, you can't comment on any of the mood boards in here because I, it's all future stuff. Okay. Right? Well, I won't comment. <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Okay. But, I mean, you see that a lot of this comes from, um, you know, not just history, but also the, uh, the original design. And I think that that's something that so many people think that maybe it's because we're in this, like, futuristic world right now, but I, I don't want to get us too far off track, but... Well, I, you know, it's funny. It's like every t- every stage of my work, I said career. God, it's oh, Um Every state, different magazine outlets say that I've worked for, I've filled in a different gap that I probably didn't know was there before. That is, I started on a trade magazine. I knew nothing about consumer press until I went to consumer press. And in doing that, I went to after four years. I went to British Esquire, which was then a year old or two years old, I think. Um, and I was fashion director then. I knew nothing when I went there, just like I knew nothing when I went to the one before. But from Esquire, I went freelance for a time, and then I got sucked into Arena, and Arena on Plus taught me a completely different way to look at menswear. Went from there to GQ, taught me a completely way to di- different way to look at menswear. Are these opposites, or this is just like a whole new They're nuances. Sort of... Gotcha. Oh, they've rung off. <laughs> no, the, 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 you know, it's a bit like um, there's, you know, there's four different ways to eat pizza. This is true. It's still the same pizza at the end of the day, <laughs> but you can put different toppings off it, and you can do it with a knife and fork if you're really pedantic, or you can do it with your hands, or you can roll it up, or you can, well, you know. So, you know, the way that people at Arena thought about men, men's style and what was important about the image and and everything was very different from the way we thought about it at Esquire because obviously you try and identify who your reader is and you try to go towards them. Yeah. But at the same time, some of these things, I just think you get, you, you, if you're not still learning about stuff, then if you're not learning anything, like if you just know what fashion should be, then you should go and do something else, frankly. (laughs) Um, I I, I mean, I, I find out we're always passing around and partly the reason Big Black Book started was because we sat in the back of a car in Milan, um, and, our, and then editor in chief David Granger. Um, he said, uh, "You're always talking about just that sort of arcane sort of knowledge and stuff." And I said, "Yeah, sorry." He said, "No, no, no. I'm not. I'm not complaining." He said, "But we never see it. We never get it on the pages. We don't have the, the place to put it on the pages." Right. And that's how Big Black Book came about. It was. It was not personally my knowledge or any, anyone else's, but it was just. If you're inside the business, and I think this is true of a lot of people, you kind of make the mistake of thinking that everybody knows what you know. I wholeheartedly and what they don't agree. realize is that you have an extremely privileged position, <laughs> and and if you can pass that on, you get a lot of enthusiasm from people because they go, "Oh, I didn't know." You know, we got a letter from David Coverdale, rock star, um, when Big Black Book came out, and I think he said something like. The most, it sounds like something out of Spinal Tap, but <laughs> he said, that it was brilliant, he said the most, the, 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 the best thing about Big Black Book is most of the things I didn't know I didn't know. Right. And, and, and that, to me, that's what, what is fun about, and maybe that's true of accountancy, I don't know, I never tried it, but <laughs> I suspect possibly not, but, um, but there are, I'm sure there are loads of careers that people can take where until you get in them, you don't really know what what's what it is you have an idea from the outside of what working in fashion is you think it's going to runway shows all the time yeah thank god it's not right because i like going to runway shows 
and I like seeing what designers think about the world and what they think about what they should be doing, but that's not the whole story. Well, it, yeah, and I think to elaborate maybe a little bit on that is it's, it's also not exactly what's happening on the street. Like the, a perfect example no. when people talk about runway shows is they're like, oh, this is what it should be. And it's like, no, this is the designer's vision of their collection of how they want it to be done, right? But it's not what everyone's Well, wearing. if you're a cynic, which of course I'm not, but if you're, a, if you're a cynic, you could also say this was a brand's attempt to profit from the zeitgeist. <laughs> yes. And if you're, a, if you're a romantic, you would say this is a brand's attempt to manipulate or create the zeitgeist. Yeah. So it depends which brand we're talking about, obviously. <laughs> um, and at different stages, different brands have more strength as you know creating sure what's happening on the street yeah and others follow you know um there's no sort of straight line in any of this it's 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 everything changes from one year to the next right um but just like my you know the way i dress has changed the whole you know since i was 16 to now it's changed vastly when i first came to new york i was wearing i was kind of adamant i was going to wear kilgar french and stanbury suits Ready to wear, not not bespoke. Okay. Um, and I, I had a uniform. It was kind of. I mean, so those are Savile Row tailors. That Savile Row tailors, but they yeah. had they had a, a ready to wear line um, that was actually made in Shanghai, but I thought was really good, and it was half lined, so it was and it was half um, canvas, so it was a little. Well, as soon as it got warm here, after about a month of being here, and I couldn't believe how hot it was, <laughs> um, I realized I could still wear these suits for most of the summer. Right. I haven't worn a tie. I think I've worn a tie probably twice in the last year. Well, so and it was it was a pleasure, but it wouldn't have been if I'd had to do it every day. Right, and I think like so when I first met you. So first off, you're a huge reason how I got into this industry. Oh, I am. And I'm yeah. sorry, no, I because you, um, it was your recommendation that got me the. Uh, watch writing thing when I used to do watch writing stuff for Esquire.com. Ah, okay. And I, you know, I would go on press trips with you occasionally because mm. uh, this is when I was writing for other magazines and stuff too. And I was, you were very, very kind and polite in terms of how people should dress without. I think one of the things that people do now is when they talk about how someone needs to look, the first thing they'll start is by like kind of mocking them of like, oh, well, you look like this. You shouldn't do this. Mm. And when I was talking to you, because I was like, well, man, I was like, Nick Sullivan's like a legend. Let me, I was like, how does he wear that? And I was like, oh, why, why do you have your shirt or anything like that? And you're like, oh, this? And you were very, very polite and kind of like how you dressed and how you took care oh. of yourself. And that really stuck with me as like, oh, you know what? Like Nick Sullivan's like a super authentic dude. Like, I remember we were talking about, so Orlebar Brown, mm-hmm. Swim Trunks had just come out. Yeah. We were in Antigua. Oh, for the, for the Panerai. Yeah. Yeah. And course. you were telling me, you know, Everyone listening is going, wankers. Right <laughs> no, <now." laughs> no. But, like, I was just like, wow, I was like, where did you get those? And this is, and you were like, look, you know, at the end of the day, this is Swim Trunks. Like, you don't, you don't have to let this stuff define you. And I think, like, because I was a younger, very hungry guy, and, and I just wanted to look cool and be accepted. And you, you know, were someone who is and has been in the industry a lot longer, and you've seen how things have come and gone. And mm. you realized, you know, and especially from what you're saying now, is that the stuff that people cared about the most is just, like, your authenticity. And I think that that really spoke to me um, a ton and made, you know, and like all these, uh, all these like cogwheels in my head just started firing and clicking. I was like, oh, I get it. And 
I if think, I if I I can't remember now, but if I was if I said anything disparaging, I hardly apologize. No, no, you were very very nice. And the funny thing is, I've met a lot of other people who are in the industry and have been in there for a long time. And when they tell other people why they do what they do, they more or less kind of mock them. Well, you don't want to look like this. This guy's an idiot. Da, da, da. And you never ever said that. You were just like, well, I think the style of that is going to make it more difficult in X Y Z. Was I thinking it? <laughs> well, that you know what? That's fine. If you no, want to do that, I don't think I was. <laughs> Certainly not in your case. But you know, but you know what? I realized that I've I, when I was I was writing the page that we had a, a sort of an Ask Nick page for several years on on Esquire, and I did it actually style shrink. It used to be called when I was on GQ in London, and we used to get there was there are times when people write in with questions, and it's very important to ask them uh, answer them in a helpful way. Sure, and. We got a point to a point, and it was, if you think about when when that whole kind of, first we had that Mad Men thing, mm-hmm. which sort of started before the program anyway, but those sort of narrow Tom Brown suits were around before, before yeah. Mad Men started in 07. So the look was already in fashion, it just went wider at that point. Right. Then we went from that clean thing to a little dandy thing that was a bit tweedy and a bit sort of double-breasted, hand in pocket, pocket square, look at me, pity mm-hmm. womo wo- kind of fandango. Right. And so the, there was... Tons of questions flying in from men going, wait, wait, what? Should my monk straps match my watch strap uh, or my jock strap or my whatever? I don't know. And I, so we were like, quick, more more questions, more questions, answer questions, answer questions, answer questions. Right. And after a while, every time I, 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 by about 2012, my stock answer, which we couldn't really publish, was don't care. Right. Because, and neither should you. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, because you reach this point where men have sort of got mad into fashion. Yeah. And so now I would probably want to sort of restrain people, not to say mock them, but I'd say, are you sure you should be doing that? But the point is, you know, menswear exists because there are those crazy dandies at Pity Womo. True. You know, menswear exists because there is Raph Simon. Yeah. You know, if there was only Raph Simon, there's a lot of people who wouldn't get dressed in the morning, you know, and the same the other way around. It's um, it, it's like just because I don't want to dress like that doesn't mean it hasn't doesn't have a t- entirely valid reason to to exist. Yeah, I mean, and I was, clothes should enrich your life, and it doesn't have to enrich the same people the same way in every sense. Yeah, I was just on my way up here. I had walked down. Uh, I was coming up from Soho, and I walked past Rick Owens, and I saw all these like ninja looking dudes wearing long drapey you know black layers of looking yeah. like yoji yamamoto stuff and i'm like wow in my head i was like that's kind of what menswear is now and i used to love that look and i think there's like i often make jokes that like i think menswear is really just like really good like cheap um psychology for men because a lot <laughs> of it is just like trying to be confident you know i mean yeah i if i I was making a joke to a friend of mine the other day and I was telling him, I was like, you know what? I just want to sell everything I own and I'm going to go to Costco and I'm going to wear like a Costco sweatshirt, Costco jeans and Costco shoes. And he goes, that would actually be really cool. And I was like, I see, that's what it is. I think like so much of some of the men's stuff. It would make a great feature. (laughs) Yeah, right? It would. It's funny, Rick Owens, one of the, when I was talking about going to different magazines gives you a different perspective. And at, at arena particularly that's when i kind of began to finally understand the aesthetic of a, of a pure designer a rick owens or a ray kawakuba at least i think i i think i understood it sure i don't think i even tried before 
it was so out there that it was it seems like well it wasn't for me but i think there's relevance what i'm trying to say is there's relevance in every designer mm-hmm. you know they may may not be what you wear i'm not going to go out and buy uh a, you know a four foot long um kimono or something tank top okay you yeah, know, yeah. flesh colored tank top from rick owens and i think you'd be horrified if i walked into a store right now anyway but but you cannot fault the man for technique and knowledge oh, and agree. inspiration and genius and man he does it you know yeah and that's what i'm saying is we need we don't need a consensus we need people doing what they do in fact the consensus is the killer because the moment a trend is 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 agreed on by 12 labels it's, it's dead yes you know, so it's actually better that now, you know, things that people are focusing on authenticity, and because those are things that can be a, a consistent across lots of different types of fashion. Mm-hmm. They're not the same in different brands, but a, a passion for technique in terms of actual crafts, which is not an old-fashioned thing. It's a, it's a modern thing. You know, Rick Owens stuff is made really, really beautifully. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, he's old. He's as old school as as uh, someone from Savile Row. Yeah, I mean, he, well, he's a pattern maker. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I mean, look at some of the most creative designers out there. You know, Lee McQueen was a, you know, worked for a year on Savile Row and never forgot it. Yeah. You know, um, I th- <coughs> again, I hear I'm going to sound like an old fart, but there's the, the, that sort of training, you, it, there's no substitute for that. Social media does not cha- train you for that. Uh, a... a, a, a a degree in fashion doesn't train you for that. Right. You, hands on. I, mean, I, wish, I wish I'd been made by my editor to go and work in a factory for three months. Yeah? I mean, thank God he didn't. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, but at the same time, I, I spend my life getting invites to go to factories, and it's the one thing I like doing more than anything. I don't have time. Right. All the Italians always, oh, come to our factories in Arezzo, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Yeah, okay, I'll come to yours after I've been to these 12 that they've got, and I've got open invites to. Yeah, I would really love. I love going to factories. Why is because that? Because if you see how things are made, you understand why they're made. Yeah, it's like if you go into a car factory and you go, "Why do they make the, why do they make the dashboard in that plastic?" And then you look at it and you think, "Well, because this is a five thousand dollar car. That's why they made it in plastic." <laughs> but at the same time, also, also, you also understand why when a designer is bullshitting you about the quality of their products. Yes, you know, you don't have to say anything. Yeah, but you go. Yeah, oh, yeah. See, so you see the you're seeing the reverse reverse calf leather you use there, or the or the split, or whatever. Yeah, and you don't bring it up because then they go, "What's a split?" Yeah. Well, you know, it depends on the way the the sort of the the, the what's the word the economy of how a, how a fashion brand is built, right? How much, how much profitability there is in in each product? Yeah. And some fast designers, fashion some stuff designers and... make really expensive stuff and make no, very little profit, and some designers make. Mm-hmm. and make lots of profit right and that's again that's we need all of that yeah we need hong kong we need we need china we need we need you know all of those things that that provide a kind of very rich melting pot for fashion for men's style so i want to get a little bit back to your story um so you you were at arena mm-hmm. and then you actually briefly touched on that you went to uh, British Esquire, British GQ, and then you came over here. Uh, I went, I went Esquire first, then Arena, and and, and Dylan Jones, who'd been the ed- group editor on the Face and Arena, um, that was a, a kind of a golden age to to be there. It was great. Right. Then he went to GQ. Okay. <laughs> and and you... a year later, I, he uh, he got me to GQ. 
And then five years later, I got a phone call out of the blue uh, when my wife, Victoria, was eight months pregnant with my son. Okay. So not a great time to be yeah, a little bit doing busy. anything. <laughs> um, and I got a phone call out of the blue from David Granger, uh, God bless him, and I whipped over here to, to meet him and we had... We had great chats. I mean, they, we were, I didn't know him at all. He didn't know me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I went back thinking, I don't know, I don't know. But anyway, we're just about to have our second child, so it, maybe it's not a good time. And then six weeks later, four, four weeks later, up came the offer, uh, which was not just a sort of a job change. It was a life change right? to up sticks and move over here with yeah. everybody. So we moved over when my son was eight weeks old. Um, 25th of March, 2004. And did, uh, we knew a few people here, obviously, and a few people in work. And, and, um, but it was what was fun, what was fun but kind of weird, was we'd go to a supermarket and go, I don't know what washing powders to get. Oh. Because there's not the same brands. And I don't know if this, this stuff is going to destroy my clothes or whether it's going to be better than anything I've ever used. And, you know, what's the equivalent of this? And what's, you know, it takes a while. You have to work it out. Yeah. Uh, even just things like banks and post offices all different. Yeah. So it was a kind of a big learning curve. So it was like being on, in a way, it was like being on an extended vacation. A 13-year vacation? For 13 years. Well, no, <laughs> well, not the whole time. But, <laughs> no, no, no. but it took a while. We got used to it. But, yeah. it but, uh, but it was novel. Right. Because, I mean, I've come to New York many times before for shoot. I've been in America for shoots and yeah, been yeah. to New York for, for the shows and all of that. But three days in New York in September, as it was then, I think, uh, is not the same as a month in New York, you know, living in Brooklyn. Yeah. It's completely different. And it would be the same if you moved to London and, or Paris or whatever. You get, a, you get a much deeper understanding. Yeah. And you're not staying in, you know, Madison Avenue or... Or whatever, you're staying in some suburb somewhere. Yeah. And then how long were you doing that before you started, Boy, excuse me, Big Black Book? Because that was... Oh, and, um, I think it was two years. Two years. But it was a time when uh, Men's Vogue was starting. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there'd been other magazines like Biannuals over in Europe. And they'd never really existed in, in the U.S., um, right, Arena Ron Plus had been around for ten years, um, nearly. Um, so it was a kind of it was a kind of a, a new toy, uh, in a way. Um, yeah. But it was it, we didn't quite know what to expect and how we would put it together and what it would feel like and what it would look like. Yeah. But we worked it out, the three of us, on the back of an envelope, and as, as they say, in fact, it was actually the back of an envelope, <laughs> <laughs> just because we had one. Um, uh, and, and more or less up until this year, we've. We've stayed fairly true to to the structure that we had at the beginning. Right. I mean, I think the the content maybe, but the structure. The voice of Big Black Book, at least for me, I always noticed as like what you were saying earlier is a little bit more informative and there was a very nice sort of polite way to figure out how to, you know, put yourself together. Like I learned how to tie a bow tie from Big Black Book. Like I'll put it that way. Mm. And I mean, this was probably 08. No. 2009 or 10 or something at the time and like so much of that stuff really taught me more of like it was it was what mag no magazine at the time that i was reading was would do that because i remember there was a feature that was about different fabrics that you could mix with other fabrics and there was one that was a 
Um, I'll see if I can find it. I might have even taken a photo of it that I'll put in the show notes. But there was like lapels and then a shirt underneath the lapel. And it was like all these different shirts that you could so wear. So how you think about stuff. putting them, yeah. Yeah. And do you know what? We huge. look back at those things and we can't believe we actually so boring that we would do that. Oh, but, but it the was the mad best. thing is that's actually what people really want. Yeah. And, 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 and I think the, the problem with, the funny thing with guys is that we are all fundamentally train spotters. And, uh, and we apply the same part of the brain that makes us nerd out about Mercedes is the same thing that makes us nerd out about Rolexes. It's the same thing that makes us nerd out about Tweed. To different degrees for different people, obviously. Sure. But I think, you know, the, the, the impulse to kind of learn that kind of stuff, ingest it, and then make that part of your canon, if you like, mm-hmm. is actually there. But a lot of time, fashion magazines don't really deliver that. You kind of deliver a kind of a sort of Miller Lite version of the culture because you don't have time because everything's fast. And, yeah. and that's why the, the, the selling time of Big Black Book was an advantage because we had three months on newsstands. So people would could buy it this week or could they buy it next month right and then because it was made like a book deliberately very deliberately like halfway between a magazine and a book both in terms of the paper in terms of the content people didn't stick it with their other magazines they stuck it in a on a bookshelf yeah and i still get people asking and i still find people you know uh asking for uh spring summer 2009 have you got any left oh wow like back Um, issue stuff yeah because and they they come up on eBay obviously and uh, um but people um people get quite sort of uh what's the word um obsessed with with the idea of ha- having that knowledge and now you know but, but at the same time that market has changed a lot and we've become it's become a much more fashion driven men's market than when we started when we started it was if you look at big black book first edition it was very Suity, tailored, tweedy, yep. Yep. old school, polished shoes, yeah, nice ties, and you know now you look at it now the new one which is very much more fashion, reflecting a kind of a great I, we think a, a, a much more enthusiasm, a more maturity, more understanding of fashion rather than style, and I think the two things together are kind of we need both, but sometimes style is more important than fashion and. Other times, fashion is more important than style. Yeah, I think like comfort is what a lot, you know, I know that like so much of this, the looks and stuff now are these kind of like, I hate to use this term, but like athleisure, which is, you know, yeah. like the, the kind of suited sort of sweatpants or really comfortable, you know, I think. I tried those. Yeah. It's not, it doesn't work <laughs> for me, for me. No, I would say the same for myself. Like I, I tried to do the the you know tracksuit type look and and i think one of the best parts and i don't know if it was you had said this or, or someone else but it talks about just the the confidence that you feel when you're wearing something that's well made and something that's put together and also in terms of it how easily you can traverse throughout multiple cultures and places and locations and if i i know for a fact there's tons of places i could walk into especially in new york that if i walk in wearing track pants they're going to be like, uh, excuse me, sir, can I help you? Versus if I walk in, you know, wearing a nice sport coat and pants, you know, yeah. maybe it's a different well, tone. You know, of, can I help you? Confidence is, is, is everything in, in, in male style. It's like, the, the, you know, there's that, Tom Ford said that famous thing that people always complain about wearing a, a suit is it's uncomfortable. 
I've never found that. I've never found suits uncomfortable, except when I've tried to buy one that's too small for me. Um, <laughs> people, men have for a lot for the longest time, men felt really encumbered by clothes, by dressing up, and that was it gave them a natural sort of revulsion to putting on a tie. And yeah. I still know lots of people who have that problem, but but in the last few years, that dressing up to a degree, even though it was it was more sort of soft tailoring and everything mm-hmm. was a major part of being sort of on the on the pulse kind of thing yeah. certain, it, certainly in america but not just in italy as well so i think it depends again it, it, it varies right now we're in this sort of athleisure thing but the problem with that is yeah confidence helps but also having a body like a supermodel kind of helps <laughs> which is why it doesn't work on me but other people it does work on and i think you know i, I go to the shows and you know, you see people who, who they're wearing clothes that I would never dream of wearing. Sure. But it works on them. Right. And it annoys the hell out of me because <laughs> they're skinny and I'm not skinny. You know, and, and there is a kind of inbuilt fascism in, in fashion. It's not intended. It's not, it's a sort of a natural sort of byproduct like, right. like CO2, you know, <laughs> that, that just goes with the territory. And, and, and you can, if you, if you, if you look a certain way, you can. There are certain people who, you know, no matter what you do, you can't. You're never going to work in those clothes, right? You know, I know there are 50 labels out there that I would, they would probably pay me not to wear their clothes, um, and and I know my limitations. But I know what I like, and I think that's really the the biggest for any guys. The, the thing is to find out actually what you like. It's not necessarily how to be cool. It's about you're comfortable when you feel good in the clothes that you have. Yeah. Now, for some people, it's like you feel good because you've just blown a fortune on that Gucci jacket or those Prada shoes or, or whatever. And for a lot of people, that, that works. But there's a lot of guys who, who are suspicious of that. They feel like that's, I'm going to feel great. I bought the, the great shoes, the beautiful shoes. But I'm also having the suspicion that I've kind of mugged myself. Right. Know, that I've spent a fortune for, for nothing. And it's not true because the clo- these are clothes that, are, you know, if you buy the right things, they're fantastic. But a lot of guys want to feel value. They want to feel that they're getting something that that was worth more than they even paid for it. Yeah, and you can that, hopefully they got wear a real bargain. You yeah, know, even if they spent a fortune, because they'll wear it for a long time. But right. that's authenticity and value. Yeah, and I think it it feels to me. I mean, I haven't been in the industry as long as you have, but I've gotten to see where things were very fashiony. You know, from when I first got into fashion, and then. And this is, you know, early 2000 or like late 90s, 2000s to then you have like the kind of hashtag menswear moment. Then it's, yeah, like you're saying, like dandy. And now it's like athleisure. I, I hope and do feel that some of the sweatpants sort of brands and stuff are going to, I'm not trying to speak poorly of them, but I think that they'll have to pivot in terms of where like trends and things like that are going. Yeah. I mean, I think they're definitely, it's a, it's a, it's a trend. That's yeah. what happens to trends. They stop, <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, mercifully. I think generally we're, we're probably more comfortably dressed than we were 25 years ago, but that's not just because of track pants. It's because, because of people like Armani way back and because of Brunello Cuccinelli and those brands that, that are in that sort of spectrum, if you like that, that make a jacket that is a very dressy jacket but has no padding in it, which means you can feel like you're dressed up without being, having to wear a track pan. Right. You know, um, so it, there, it's, it's happening across all fronts. Cloths are lighter, construction is easier, things are more durable, 
they they've managed to develop sort of fantastic kind of treatments for for cashmere like storm system and yeah. aqua spider that you can throw wine at each other and <laughs> and shrug it off and so these much flimsier clothes actually last longer right than they used to in the old days you could detonate you know a hand grenade next to a Savile row suit and you just brush it off and 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 move on and so a suit would be worn for 40 years not 5 yeah you know now i've got clothes i mean i i i do kind of beat the hell out of them cuz i if i if i like something i want to wear it every day or sure. nearly every day so and and and, and I'm always, there's a little bit of sadness when it sort of gives up the ghost. <laughs> and it's always too soon. Yeah. Because um, I don't think, I don't think my, my personal, my style has changed. But it's just because I'm into something right now. It doesn't mean I'm at, off the other stuff. I'm just not doing that right now. Right. You know what I mean? I've not changed from one person to another person. Yeah. You haven't changed your entire identity. Yeah. I know I've done that. I've changed my identity multiple times. I tried it a couple of times. <laughs> I, I told my son last weekend that when I, when I was 16, I decided after much, I, think, I don't know if I even told my mum that I was going to get my head shaved. Skinhead. Uh, it was the, that was the during the mod revival. It was yeah. like I wanted a, a very, not skinhead so much as a very close crew cut. Okay. Up to that point, I had lots of hair. Um, and I went to my barber's, this salon, which was a mistake. And then... And I think that, to be, to be fair, the bar was a bit, and I showed him a picture of someone like from Madness or something like that. And I showed him the picture, he went, you don't look like that. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, yeah, but I want you to make me look like that. He said, it's not the hair. <laughs> I was like, I think he was kind of enjoying it, but he went ahead and did it because I, was, I insisted and I kind of went home on the bus really unhappy. Oh. It was like, grow, grow, grow hair. <laughs> yeah. And then weirdly, I'm now back to kind of short hair again. but. Um, but you kind of, I, when I, when that was during kind of, that was pre-mod revival, which would be early 80s, and then it got into new romantic, which I never went anywhere near where I should stress. <laughs> Although not, I know lots of people who did. Um, after that, I was kind of, I suppose through the 80s, I, I got it all out of my system, all that sort of pot fashion stuff. Yeah. Did you ever have like think. a nutter suit or anything? Tommy Nutter? Yeah. No, no, no. I mean, I I met him when I first started. I met him a few times. Very nice chap. Um, no, because his his thing was very seventies uh, up to the late seventies, right? And that look slightly kind of fell out of favor. Yeah, as flares did and everything. And I mean, in fact, I was kind of very anti flares at that point because I kind of reached a sort of fashion consciousness at about about the year that punk came in. Well, that's good. So though I didn't I didn't necessarily ape that. It was that sort of really defined the future. Yeah. I kind of, I suppose, the, I can't really remember now. I know that I didn't look as cool as I thought I, I did. Well, I think that's the truth for everyone, right? It's like whenever you see movies that try to recreate bands or, 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 or youth culture in, <laughs> in, in the 80s. Right. They always look like, they always look like Disney versions of punk. Or <laughs> the reality is everything was made of plastic. You had terrible cheap trousers. You bought your... I bought a Parker from an army surplus store because I, I, I had about a six-week period with the hair of being a mod. Okay. And so I went and invested in a Parker, and of course it was the wrong bloody Parker. And everyone laughed at me and said, that's the wrong guy. <laughs> what was it? It was a German army. West, it, it was a, when it was still West Germany. Right. German army Parker instead of 
the U.S. Army Park. Oh, I said, yeah, but they didn't. Have, they, they were more expensive. Guys, I was trying. <laughs> but the reality is, half the people there were were they're just trying to do their own thing. Yeah, and the you know people who were more authentic, who did, who had more money to blow on it, or or just took more time on it, were probably the more memorable. But everyone else just sort of swilled along in a kind of hopeful, in a hopeful way that sort of that you kind of belong to something. Right. Do you know what I mean? And I think so. When you look back at it, the tri- the reality of those kind of youth cultures is rather less alluring than it actually looks like from from now. Yeah. When I was younger, I really wanted an Adidas jacket, uh, like the soccer jacket, the stripey, yeah, the tight one, the, the three stripes and all that. And I mm-hmm. wanted it so bad. And you know, uh, at the time, uh, we my parents couldn't afford it, and they were like, you know, no, like you can't do that. And I remember my mom got me a jacket instead, and she got me a lotto jacket. Mm. She was like, well, I can get you this. And it was like Lotto is that Italian brand with the horizontal diamonds. Mm. And I wore it to school. And I remember um, I was like, guys, I was like, I have, I have this Lotto jacket. What do you think of that? And they're like, that's not Adidas. It's like, you, you look dumb. Like, you need the Adidas jacket. And I was like, dang. But now I kind of wish I had that Lotto jacket. It would be a lot cooler now. Well, isn't that, that's always the case, isn't it? The, the, whole, thing with, the whole thing with like being in gangs is that, as soon as you are one in one, you start to think, but I'm not that. I, I don't. But I don't. I'm not into that. I'd rather <laughs> yeah. be. I'd rather be the one that was left out. Yeah. But I think that's that's where a life a lifetime of obsession with sneakers starts. You know, with that kind of vibe, and right, and not just sneakers with with tweed or with with anything. You know? Yeah. Again, it's playing to that that slightly obsessive, nerdy little part of the brain in a man that says, you know, I'm going to get a Mercedes. <laughs> you go, why? Well, it's got a 39.2. Why is a Mercedes? Yeah. You know, ultimately, we need the we need this facts that we hunger for to legitimize the waste of money we're about to make. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Because no. it, it, it makes us feel like we're not being conned. Yeah, no, I hear you. And, and, but legitimately, though, you know, if you're going to choose value, uh, some have some criteria for choosing value, then, then authenticity is probably the only thing. Right. But whether or not it's cool is not quite so strong. And whether your mates in the in the schoolyard think so, that's all you've got to go on at that point. No, no. Yeah. I hear you. So this has been a ton of fun. Thank you, thank it you has, so much for you. coming on. I wanted to also make sure that you had the opportunity to mention any other stuff if you want. Um, uh, yeah, I'm what, also taking bookings doing um, Alan Rickman voiceovers if anyone wants to. Yeah, that's never right. tried it. <laughs> um, when's the next Big Black Book come out? Uh, in about three days. Oh, um, right at the beginning of April. So, uh, okay, it's a big step on. This is a this is part of the the, the changes at Esquire. Um, it's a it's a it's a move. Uh, it's fun. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. So, in I, you know, obviously from all the stuff that you're working on, uh, you're pretty busy here. So, do you have any other projects or stuff coming up or? Well, no. I mean, it, you know, we've, we've never been more more busy in in all the time I've been here, and, and with good reason. I did start doing. Um, I did start to uh, teach myself to sew um, leather and make things. I've make seen things. that. You've seen it, right? Yeah, I've seen that. But on I your stopped Instagram. again in the last year because I just don't have any time to do it. But I do love it. It's a kind of a Zen escape thing. Yeah. I went to Hermes for Big Black Book several years ago, and and I went to Pontin, which is the suburb of Paris where they actually make Birkin bags entirely by hand. Right. Again, this is that part of that thing. If you see actually how people do things, you kind of like, oh my 
my God, you do actually make this by hand. <laughs> and you know, when you hear where Hubie got was handmade, and some people handmade is they use a hand to turn the machine on. Yes. And move the thing in and out <laughs> while the machine does its business. Not really handmade. It's hand supervised. It's hand supervised. <laughs> there are hands involved. But you know, this Hermes thing is like one guy who has to train for five or six years before he's even allowed near a piece of leather. Wow. And still makes mistakes at that point, you know. And and so I went through the process of just being these very cool, normal guys just talking about how they make Kelly bag. And then at one point they, they do this thing called the uh, the birth, the la naissance. It's, it's when a Kelly bag's sewn inside out mm-hmm. because of the way the seams are. And at a certain point, the Kelly bag is wider at the bottom than it is at the top. The, the opening at the top is smaller than the, bo- the base of the bag. So if you've got to turn it inside out, it's actually not an obvious thing. So they call it the birth. You can go with a metaphor there. Where they have to turn this thing inside out, which you would think, okay, well, you take your time over it, it'll be all right. But these are 20,000 euro crocodile bags. Right. You get it wrong and you crack the scale of the the sheen on the scales of the crocodile, you throw it away. Oh, God. You know, so apparently everybody stops. um, And they have a thing called a Senegalese drum. I think I remember rightly. It's it's sort of like one of those, you, you see them in sort of um, travel programs, with like very long drums, but it's a big piece of wood with a rounded tip in this case. And that's what they use to turn, gradually soften. They've massaged the leather for ages and ages and ages. Wow. And eventually they turn it round and they turn it inside out and that's the birth. And I sat there and I was just kind of like, yeah, but I'm still not paying $20,000. <laughs> but it is impressive. <laughs> Right. story of my life <laughs> yeah well thank you again so much for coming on this was a lot of fun really thank really you. appreciate it it's been good alright talk to you soon you've been listening to Blamo. a big thanks again to Nick for taking the time to come on if you like what you heard leave a review on iTunes it helps let others know and discover the pod subscribe and listen to new and archive episodes on iTunes, Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts Last but not least, you can always find me elsewhere on the web on Instagram and Facebook at Blamo Podcast or send me an email at jeremy at blamopod.com. We'll see you again next week.